I was convicted and like my heart and my soul. He <laughs> said, he said, you know, we talk about diversity and inclusion and everybody talks about people of color. We talk about different languages. We talk about different religions. We talk about men, women. We talk about LGBTQA plus, but where are people with disabilities? Mm-hmm. Everybody is either forgotten or placed last. It's like, I just want to be included and be at the table with everybody else. Welcome to Replay, the show that invites you to join us at the game table. I'm your host, Clara Mount. On Replay, we're building a more inclusive community by creating a space for underrepresented gamers and their allies to share their voice. We'll tell stories about our experiences and provide new perspectives that challenge our community to think differently about who we are and what we do. Replay is a Victor Media Group original. You can find episodes of this and all other Victor Media Group shows on our website at victormediagroup.co. And if you like what you're hearing, subscribe and connect with us on your favorite social media platform. Today's guest is Elaine Gomez. She is a Puerto Rican game designer and developer with over five years of experience crafting systems and features for gameplay, user experience, and accessibility. She currently works at Brass Lion Entertainment as a game designer, um, and that's a studio that's focused on creating original fictional universes that center on black, brown, and other marginalized characters, cultures, and stories. So, of course, diversity and inclusion is at the heart of that studio, um, which is something that we love to see. She's also an active advocate in the games industry. She mentors young developers, um, and she also supports the nonprofit Latinx in Gaming, which is an organization she helped to co-found. And the goal for that is to uplift Latinx creators. So without further ado, welcome to Replay, Elaine. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you on here to talk about some of your experiences. Um, but we're just gonna, before we get into all of your exciting industry stuff, I just wanna get to know you and and kind of how you feel about games. So my first question for you today, Elaine, is what is the number one reason that people should care about games? Number one reason should be that games are like the coolest form of media, like out of all the forms <laughs> of media, in my opinion. Because you can really immerse yourself, you're actively doing something, and there's nothing quite like it. Like, you can read a book, you can read a comic, you can watch a film, and they're all excellent forms of media, and they can really captivate you in different ways, but there's something special about what games have to offer and the kind of things that you can do when creating a game that you just can't do with anything else. And I think that's why people should care about it and pay attention a little bit more. And they're so applicable to so many things, like not just entertainment, but games could be used for education. They can be used mm-hmm. for training. They can be used for all types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could really they could really change the way that we see and do things. Um, and that's that's just how I feel about it. But I'm I'm biased. I'm I'm a game designer. So <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm not a game designer, and I agree with you though. <laughs> like as somebody who's played, I mean, consumed all different kinds of media. You're right. There is nothing that's quite as engaging and gripping as a game. And like, it is totally different to experience a world or a setting or a person in that way versus like you know, watching it on a screen and you can't really interact. So mm-hmm. yeah, on point. I love that answer. <laughs> so, okay. So how did you first get into gaming? So 
interesting and very uh, traditional way too. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of my colleagues and friends in the industry, like there's so many people that just knew they wanted to make games from early age or early on. Mm -hmm. And when I started going to college, I just wanted to go into medicine. I was studying. Wow. Yeah, I was studying biomedical engineering um, and pr with pre-med in mind. So mm -hmm. doing like all those science and math like electives and requirements. Wow. And um, I just started taking complicated math and sciences and I started flunking. Um, and it, I, it wasn't because I wasn't smart um, or I didn't understand the material. It was literally because I was not passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't really care about it I was just not absorbing and then I was flunking and um I did everything that I could because it, I really wanted to like you know please my parents like I'm, I'm Puerto Rican like in Latino households like that's what you do like <laughs> mom and dad's opinion is so like heavy yeah <laughs> and you really want to make them happy and you see how much they sacrifice to help mm -hmm. you get to where you are and like all you want to do is like just make them proud right yeah <laughs> so that's what I wanted to do. But at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? I am, t I'm doing tutoring. I am getting help after class. I am doing extra homework and doesn't matter what I do when it comes down to sit down and like do this test, I blank out yeah. and I don't know, I don't know how to fix it. So I had to have a really tough, hard conversation with my parents and say, you know, I, I really want to make you proud and I would really love to be a doctor because I love helping people. And I, I definitely, I'm a very social person, mm -hmm. but I was like, this, this curriculum is not feasible for me. Like my mental health is not doing good. Like mm -hmm. something has got to give and I need to change my major. Um, you know, and they were reluctant. Now they're like, well, like, what are, what is it? What are you going to study then? Like, are you going to yeah. be a starving artist? Are you going to oh, no. <laughs> go into IT and like, you know, all those jobs are getting outsourced because both of my parents are in the IT world. They're in pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So they know exactly how that world operates. And they're like, yeah. we don't want that for you. And I was like, you know what? But maybe that's that's what I'm good at. Like, I love technology. I like programming. Like, all that stuff's inter interesting to me. Let me try. And if I don't like it, I can all, I have time. Like, the time to fail is in college where things yeah. are low risk. And I'm not worried about not being able to pay rent or any of that stuff. So mm -hmm. let, let me figure it out here. So that's what I did. I took a semester to try a bunch of stuff out. I did art history. I did music. I oh, did. Wow. I did like introduction to information technology and I ended up really liking IT. So I decided to declare a major in that. And I was introduced to like, not really game designer development, but it was a course about the social impacts of video games. Ooh. Yeah, so very cool course by professor. Um, my professor, his name is Dr. Joe Sanchez. First time and only time that I ever had a Latino professor in a college program. And that includes my graduate degree as well, because I have a master's. Um, but that was the only time. And he just like, he really saw that I was passionate about games because I love mm -hmm. playing games, but I never thought that I was going to work in games. I, yeah. I, didn't, I never even understood or saw that as a career option, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but he's like, Elaine, like, you're really passionate about this and you're really good. You're really good about analyzing games. Maybe, maybe you should do something with that. Aww. And I was like, 
my parents are not going to like this <laughs> at all. Um, but I was like, all right, like maybe. So he recommended me to this like research institute at any, another university. It was like a summer program. Mm -hmm. And it was there that I learned a lot about some other stuff, information sciences and this other tech world that I never knew existed. And in that research institute, we also talked about like games. And I met another girl that was doing, pursuing her master's degree in game design at NYU Game Center. And wow. she was explaining all these things to me. It's like, yeah, we break down games and we analyze them. And then we make our own stuff. And I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing. Like, are you serious? You can go to school for that? And she's like, yeah, yeah, you should apply. If you really like it, I super recommend it. I was like, all right, cool. So then I was inspired by her. I wrote a whole page, uh, not page, a whole research paper. It was like 40 pages oh with three other students. Um, and we took a whole year. And it was the same year, 2012, when like the whole Gamergate uh, situation was happening. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, we used all the data from that, like a bunch of uh, like information and data from like Twitter and like what people were saying. And we wrote this whole paper on like um, women in games, both in in games as like, you know, pieces of art and entertainment and mm -hmm. women who are professionals in the industry. Yeah. And like, we talked about harassment. We talked about like the, the, uh, the salary gaps. We talked about... Um, the fact that like there were not a lot of female protagonists, um, not both including like Western games and Eastern games, and mm -hmm. like like we touched on sex, we touched on like being a piece of eye candy. We talked about like secondary characters. Like it was like a big long research paper, and I was like, you know what? There's a big issue. There's not a lot of women who are designers who are developers, mm -hmm. um, and at the time when we did that research, the percentages were so much smaller than what they are now. Yeah. Like we were seeing like 3% of, of programmers are women. This was back in 2012. Wow. Um, and we were making that assessment and I was like, you know what? I see a problem and I'm a woman of color and I want to do this. So like maybe I can be the change that I want to see if I do this. And literally it was, being inspired by all the negatives that yeah. encouraged me to pursue a career in games. Amazing. And that's what I did. So when I graduated, well, before graduating, obviously, like I sent out my applications to graduate school and I got accepted to USC's um, game game. It wasn't really a game design program. We call it that, but it's an interactive media program. Mm, okay. So I decided to pursue a master's because with my bachelor's, I didn't have any game design or development knowledge. Yeah. That was not something that my university offered. USC focuses on storytelling. They they really focus on design. Other programs focus more on the technical, like yeah. building game engines or really understanding some nitty gritty um, programming in, when it yeah. comes to games. So that's what I did. And I got accepted. Um, at the program, and from then on, it was learning the craft of game design. It was doing a lot of networking. So I met, of course, my my other um, cohort members um, who were coming in from like different backgrounds. We had somebody who was coming from like neuroscience. We had somebody who was coming in straight up from uh, what was it? It was like engineering, architecture, or art in general, just like wow. <laughs> sculpting and painting. Everybody's backgrounds was super different, but everybody wanted that. to learn how to design games. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was really, really awesome. And that's how I started. And from there, because the school was in LA, I was exposed to like the Los Angeles indie game development community, right? Mm -hmm. And like, I didn't even know what D&D was until I was at that school. I was 23 really? years old. Yeah. No. I didn't know what D&D was. It's just not in my world. Like, that's just not something I was ever exposed to. That's so um, interesting. So I learned a lot of a lot of things, and from then on, it was just what I decided I wanted to spend my life doing. That's amazing. I kind of got chills in there because it's like when you said you want to be the or you could be the change you want to see. Like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> love that. So Thanks. what uh, has um? So you said you always have liked playing games, right? Mm -hmm. Before you ever got into making them. So. Yeah. What kind of what kind of games are your favorite ones to play and like why are those the ones that appeal to you? I really enjoy playing adventure games, games that have a lot of exploration where they have worlds that are interesting that I could really plug myself into and just walking around and running around is fun. Like yeah. I love those type <laughs> of games. Um, however, I really like scary games and like combat center games and a lot of co-op. I love I love co-op games. I, there's mm -hmm. something nostalgic about co-op because my very first console was an N64 and I had two brothers. So all the games that my parents bought us had to be like local co-op because they mm -hmm. wanted me to play with my brothers. So it's very nostalgic. So I, I, I like all the co-op games uh, <laughs> because of that. Um, but th those are the type of games that I enjoy. But I, I do enjoy the occasional first-person shooter here and there. Um, lately, I've played uh, GTFO. I've played a lot of Dead by Daylight with my friends and my partner. Um, and then the last, like, um, first-person like first -person story driven the game that I played was Kenna, um, mm. which I really loved. Um, but those are, to give you, like, an idea of the types of games that I like, that's pretty much the range. It's like a lot of survival horror, co-op, a little bit of shooter, um, some adventure and, like, exploration stuff, first-person stuff. And I do love the occasional very narrative center indie game mm -hmm. um, or little puzzle games as well. I enjoy those. So my my a lot. taste <laughs> is very wide. Yes. Yeah. But that also comes from being a designer because I feel like the more that I can experience and expose myself to, the more range I will have in references that I can use to inspire in my work. So oh, that I do, makes perfect sense. I yeah. do a lot. So even if I'm just playing one hour of a game, that's sometimes that's really all I can give, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I have time for is like one hour or maybe two hours in a game. Um, I'll take it to do to play different games so that I can really expand my my knowledge library of references. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. I know I told you that this is one of my favorite questions that I ask. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I am curious if you could tell me about a gaming experience that was really significant to you and why, like how it impacted you. So, okay. So I definitely have a story. So this is very specific to me and an ex my own experience, right? Mm -hmm. So. There was this game that came out when I, I don't remember if I was finishing high school or if I was in college, but I was younger. And uh, the game was Child of Light. So it was very beautiful graphics. I, I, I honestly bought it for the graphics. <laughs> Because I, I thought it was so it was so cool that it was nice and painterly. Yeah, it's storybook. It it's so pretty. Yeah, exactly. It's a storybook, right? So I bought it. I was like, oh, it's pretty art. Like, 
fine, I'll deal with this, right? Um, then the story opened up, and I, I don't know if you remember, but the beginning intro was, like, really long. Yes. <laughs> like, it was a very long, cutscene <laughs> uh intro to the game. But she was talking about how, you know, she got separated from her dad, right? Like, there's this evil queen, and yeah. like, she separated her from her dad, and all of a sudden, she's in this other world, and all she wants is to, like, go back to her dad, right? Mm -hmm. And that touched me, because at the time, I was going through some really, a really rough patch with my da own dad, mm -hmm. and all I wanted was to have a good relationship with my dad, but we were at such odds with each other. Um, that it literally felt impossible to sit down and just have a normal conversation because it felt like everything that I did and everything that I said would just trigger him into a spiral of anger. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know why, right? But luckily now our relationship has changed. Like we were <laughs> mended all of our stuff. Everything's okay now. Good. But back then it was bad, right? Yeah. And playing that game, just like I resonated so much with that longing. And I remember a quote um, where there was this little light character that's kind of like a Navi following you around. Yeah, I, I forget him. what his name was. I, I um, do too, but he was cute. I loved him. He was very cute. <laughs> but I remember this specific um, moment where he was roaming around and he was like, um, what, what is love? Um, and then the main character um, explained, like, like love is when something like you you miss some someone, um, something like that, mm -hmm. uh, or you miss spending time with someone um, that you cannot be with, something like that. And, but I know that broke me down. It was like the first time that I ever cried playing a game because I felt that. With my dad, I was like, I love my dad so much, but like, I feel this distance and all I want is for him to just talk to me, like yeah. for him to just listen to me. And that was the first, that was like the first moment I could be like, wow, like I really connected with this character in the storyline because I'm really going through something tough and I could relate mm -hmm. to what she was experiencing because she was literally separated like from her dad. She was in a different world. And that's how I felt in my own relationship with my dad. It felt like we were on complete opposite planets. Yeah. Um, communication styles were not there and there was no way that I could get through. Um, so that was very, very... Um, I don't know, very personal. It's a personal, very personal game to me. And I was very mm -hmm. fortunate that the lead narrative designer, writer of Child of Light was one of my advisors for my thesis project. At oh, USC. wow. Yeah, Jeffrey Allen. Um, so he he's fantastic. And he was able to help me a little bit with, with my project. That's a beautiful story. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've definitely had a lot of rough patches with my family too. So um, that that really hit me too. Like I'm going to cry. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to hold back tears, you know, because like, it, it, and it's just like movies, anything that touches on like a mom and dad uh, relationship with a kid or like, just like somebody, it just oh, always makes me cry. Cause I can me. feel that. Like I went through that. I resonate like, Oh man. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to cry. So let, let's move on. <laughs> All right. Moving, changing the topic. <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, honestly, I'm just, I think that's a great time to go to a break. So I'm just going to say thank you so much for sharing these stories with us already. Um, we're going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about game design um, as a tool to explore and celebrate identity, culture, and self-expression. And I'm really excited for that conversation. So everyone, please stay tuned. 
friends, have you always wanted to be a corporate sellout? Have I got the opportunity for you? Now you can buy my shirt, wear it to Friday Night Magic or your local Smash tournament, and dunk on everyone you know about how your podcasts are better than theirs. If you want to support my show, head over to bubblegumbitchcraft.etsy.com and load up that cart. Again, that's bubblegumbitchcraft.etsy.com so you can cover your shit in replay stickers and whatever else I come up with. (laughs) And hey, thanks for playing. Welcome back to Replay. We're here with Elaine Gomez, game designer at Brass Lion Entertainment. And we're here to talk about game design um, as a way of exploring and celebrating identity, culture, and self-expression. Big, heavy topic today, but I think we're going to learn some really cool stuff. So um, I guess just to start the conversation, I think I think everyone knows that games are a really unique space for exploring identities and cultures especially. Um, it's come up before on my show about how you can use games to explore uh, like gender identities and kind of understanding different aspects of yourself or just things you can't do in real life, <laughs> right? Like when you play D&D and you're like, oh my God, I have stable income, this is great. But like, <laughs> so um, yeah, but this conversation is coming at that topic more from like the design perspective. So I kind of want to just start by asking Elaine, like. What is your philosophy about game design? Like, how do you approach that? So um, my philosophy is kind of like a, it's a combination between several things. And this is heavily based on the curriculum that I was taught at the game design program that I graduated from. Mm -hmm. So um, at the University of Southern California, where I did my degree, um, we read several books that were very critical to my design thinking. So one of them is called Rules of Play, which Mm -hmm. is written by Eric Zimmerman and Katie Salen. Um, That was like instrumental in like deep theory and analysis of certain things like the concept of flow um, and the different types of 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 resources and the different types of analysis that you can do um, when it mm-hmm. comes to design of games. Um, also, because the chair of our department was Tracy Fullerton, um, one of our core books is also the Game Design Workshop, which was written by her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was fundamental as well, talking about player goals and design goals and resources and how to implement all of that stuff um, into, into the design of your game. So... Those are the major two books, to be honest with you, that really created a foundation for me. And from then on, it's like all these other books that I just discovered on Amazon or that I would hear other classmates talk about and that I read. And they kind of all informed my design thinking. But my philosophy is um, player-centric, um, mm-hmm. definitely a lot of user experience. Um, and with that comes accessibility. So I'm always th- I'm always thinking about how is the player going to feel? What is the player going to see when, or what is the player going to understand from this system or this mm-hmm. visual or this audio cue? Um, and is that playing into my own design goal of what I want to communicate as a designer through this this system or through this feature? So that's one of them, being player-centric and mm-hmm. user experience heavy and accessible. The other one is iterative. So I don't Mm -hmm. just design one thing and then just say, this is done. Like, this is exactly what I'm going to go for. I am iterative in the way that I'm constantly, like, reformatting my goals so that they make sense, so that they're clear. Um, Mm -hmm. And constantly going back to my designs and realigning things. And if not, if things are going through a different tangent in a good way, 
then rewriting some goals and re redoing some design so that it adapts to the changes that are coming and that make more sense, that feel more organic, things mm. like that. So iteration is another core. And the last one I would say is very, um, very holistic. Mm -hmm. I tend to look at, at a game as a clock. And this is uh, an analogy that was taught to me by Richard Lamarchand, who uh, worked on the entire Uncharted series. He, Richard ah, is famous. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he was a fantastic uh, professor at USC, and I learned so much in his courses. And again, I was very fortunate that he was one of my advisors for my thesis project. Um, but Richard, um, he really honed in on design being like or I'm sorry, a game being a system like a clock. Mm -hmm. Your entire game is a clock. But when you open up a clock, there's so many gears and wheels and screws that make it tick and work. Take one of those things out and the clock is not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. Even like the most literalist gear that may be insignificant, it's going to throw all of it off. So the systems thinking is something that is super core to my design philosophy. So I'm very holistic in the way that I see a game. I look at all the different systems and features and say, how do these all work together? How do they all have intention and purpose? And if there is something missing or there is a gear in the wrong place or it's a gear that's not turning and making the clock work, how can we fix it? What are the solutions that will make it so that this entire game as a whole is running properly? Um, so that those are like the three core things to my, my design philosophy. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I can see how, um, especially with you being very mission driven, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you're, that's, that's how you can connect what you're doing as a designer back into like your personal goals and purposes. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like in, in learning that from being at USC and just being a designer and doing this day in, day out you could really ad like adopt the idea of thinking that everything is a system like mm -hmm. your body is a system right there's yeah everything is working together to make it whole a recipe is a system every ingredient has its purpose into making that recipe work um same thing with a car that's a whole system <laughs> a bunch of parts and like features and segments literally you can apply that to every single thing in your life um mm -hmm. And that's helped me evaluate a lot of stuff in it from a different lens. Like I can never play a game now after going through all of that and not tear it apart into its systems and features because that's just not second nature <laughs> <laughs> with everything that I do. Oh yeah, oh, including yeah. like listen, I am. I, so I got engaged over over Chris, Christmas, mm -hmm. and um, even planning a wedding is a system. Let me tell you. Like, oh there's so many moving parts, and I'm like, why does it cost $8,000 to have flowers and decorations? Like, this shit is wild. That's uh, and, crazy. I, and you see it, and it's a system. Like, there's the florist, and there's the DJ, and there's the wedding planner, and there are all these people, and they're all doing their own things to make the entire event work. And it's literally <laughs> just like a game. That's exactly how I'm treating it. 
Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it, and it's really fun because I'm designing it, right? And I'm yeah. getting some help, right? Like the wedding planner is like my project manager. She's my producer. And then they will help me figure out what are the rules, the design goals and the, the programming goals that I need <laughs> to set, right? But it's literally at every aspect of my life. I can think of it as a system. Um, and it really helps me like every day just like rehone and sharpen my design skills when I oh, when yeah. I apply it to everything because then I can like for example I love to cook that's why I said like recipe is yeah, like yeah. a system because every, every so often I'm like okay I really want to make this cake or I want to make like this this stew and I look at the ingredients and I say okay the reason why we're using eggs is to bind mm-hmm. the reason why we are using brown sugar instead of white sugar is because of this reason. And then you start literally like there's a goals and purposes for everything. And it's wild to me, like how incredibly powerful it is to break things apart in that way. Oh yeah. Oh man. I I think we could talk about that for a really long time. I'm a big fan of design thinking as well. Um, and I didn't realize how naturally it came to me until I like read some books about it recently. And, and I've always had a mind for systems. So it's just like, you're, you're talking to me and I'm like, Oh God, I'm never going to see my life the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It changes your life. Like it's because it transforms how your brain is wired. Yeah. It, It really does. Yeah. I mean, when I, you think about when you get into anything, like when I got into podcasting, like I listen to things completely differently now than I did before. I think about content completely differently. And like, it's, uh-huh. yeah, definitely when you, when you get passionate about something, it totally shapes how you think about everything else. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh man. So, okay. So are there any ways that you as a designer try to kind of like leave your mark in the stuff that you work on? Um, yes. And no, right? Okay. <laughs> so when it comes to working at a studio where you are part of a unit, and yes, it's important to put in your own creative voice, mm-hmm. and it's important for you to express yourself as a designer as a person, um, you need to also abide by the goals and guidelines and pillars that are placed on the project where six, seven, eight, or even dozens of designers are coming together yeah. and agreeing on something that will be the end goal, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, in the way that I design, I always put my voice. So I'm very community focused. I'm very player and accessibility focused. I'm always putting um, like iterative process first. Like I wanna, pr- as soon as I write something down, I just wanna prototype it and I wanna iterate on it and be like, okay, I made this thing that works. What are your thoughts, right? So mm-hmm. that's the way that I operate. And that's how I'm able to voice myself as a designer on my team, right? Yeah. Um, not everybody works that way, right? And I have to respect that because people have their own workflows and the way the ways of thinking, of design thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in my own personal work, I can, I have the freedom the flex, and the flexibility to inject a little bit more of me that perhaps I wouldn't be able to at my job, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for example, I just, uh, Global Game Jam just happened this past weekend and I worked on a game with my partner and we went with a sci-fi theme, right? So robots, alien planet, like colorful stuff, lots of particles and glows, right? Yeah. But I was like, you know what? I want the robot to be Puerto Rican. So like, how do we do that? Okay, we'll, we'll just put a little flag in, in the back of, in, in her back of her head. 
so that people Aww. know so that people know it's like oh maybe she was made by a puerto rican team and deployed by a puerto rican team who knows yeah. but it's a little easter egg right so it's like you're puerto rican you'd be like oh man like there's our flag that's so cool right yeah um and then i added other things like little silly things that don't really matter to gameplay but i just wanted to i was like what if there's little music notes in the world that you just collect and the robot just hums a tune um, and I was like, oh, I will do that. So I like in one of the little tracks um, and I voiced the, the robot. We used like audio software to like change the pitch and the voice. <laughs> um, but uh, I like hummed the Puerto Rican national anthem, like the very first like line of it. And I hummed like a really popular salsa song that like everybody knows all around the world. It was suavemente, <laughs> like everybody knows that song. It was yeah. like home that song. So it's just like, okay, cool. Like I was able to inject a little bit of like me and the things that the quirkiness that I like into this game because like I, I made it with my partner. It's a little piece of me and I just wanted to try it out and see if people's reaction when they played it, right? Yeah. Um, well, how do people react? Well, I don't know if anybody else really played. Um, I had we have a friend who played it, and I was like, man, I felt really bad, like not to understand because the the Spanish song that I put in there, I didn't translate it because I was mm. like, when people listen to this song, it's in Spanish anyway, and people still sing it, like yeah. they know it. <laughs> I was like, I'm not gonna translate. It. I'm gonna put it in Spanish. Like, oh man, it felt really bad that I couldn't understand what it was saying. I was like, oh, too bad for you. It wasn't meant for you. <laughs> <laughs> but then, um, then I had like my mom and dad play it last night, and they thought it was like the cutest thing it's like oh man that's so cute they play that she was humming the national anthem that is so sweet Aww. it's like you've never seen that when have you ever seen that in a game it's like it's very specifically puerto rican thing yeah. um so i was able to inject a little bit of me into like my personal work and i tried to do that there's of course plenty of side projects you know as an indie developer you have like a slew of projects that you want to work on um <laughs> that i don't have the time for right yeah and one of them is <laughs> One of them is like a cooking game where like um, right now it's tentatively titled Cooking with Abuelita. So you're cooking with your grandmother. And it's this whole idea that like my grandmother was very special to me and she passed away a few years ago. But like one of the things that she uh, taught me was how to cook and my 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 country's dishes, right? Mm -hmm. Seasonings and all these things and making a game very personal like that where I can like pay like homage to my grandmother and like yeah. the cooking of Puerto Rico and like putting things together and all that stuff. Um, th that's how I get to really use my, my own voice and who I am as a person into the work that I do. But you know, when, when you have a full-time job and it's at a company, like there's certain limits to mm -hmm. the type of things that you can do. However, I have the freedom to bring it up to say, hey, how about we put like um, we make this character uh, Latinx? What if we mm -hmm. make them Afro Puerto Rican? What if we do something different that that does like pay homage to like who I am as a person? Right. And yeah. there's no there's nothing wrong with that. The ideas are, are free and you can express them. You can put them on the table and the important part is that they're on the table for everybody to see but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's gonna be part of the the, the published version of the game right yeah um, so what does um like what you're talking about really is about like representing your own identity in the games that you're making right mm -hmm. so how, i think it's important yeah how does that um 
like how does that really tie into like your approach to design so let's say you're working on a team where you can't really like you can put the idea out there right mm -hmm. and it doesn't get implemented um what other things can you do to like use your design to be sensitive to identities or like expression or that kind of stuff um i'm a very big believer that the way that we choose to design and develop can communicate very specific things mm -hmm. to people and they can read in between the lines like people many most gamers are very intelligent and they can understand analogies they can understand metaphors and read between mm -hmm. the lines of things even if you don't explicitly say something about it right yeah. they can make connections and we can make use of different things like environmental storytelling or the use of audio logs and all mm -hmm. that type of stuff to be able to reinforce some of the ideas and narratives right that we want to communicate but when it comes to expressing identities right when it comes to representing cultures i'm always very conscious about things being intentional and mm -hmm. having a purpose for everything and that's not just like for characters and like cultural representation that is for literally everything in the game if you're going to build a system and you barely use it because it doesn't have a purpose <laughs> then why are you wasting months of development on that right, right. That doesn't make any sense. So when it comes to being mindful and respectfully representing different aspects of people who we see every day or people who are part of your development team who deserve to be seen in a game because they're not regularly seen in mm -hmm. the medium, that could have profound impact. And this is something that I, uh, shared last week at my job it was the idea of building a legacy mm -hmm. we have the power with games to build a legacy because the content that we create is digital and can literally last forever at this point yeah we can play games that were created 40 years ago right we can use an emulator and play original pong play original Space Invaders, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so content now lives forever, right? So imagine designing something, developing something where you have the freedom to tell stories, to create worlds that are representative of the world that you currently live in, mm -hmm. of the people, of the cultures, of the languages, whatever it may be and how profoundly impactful that would, would be for somebody to look back on 10, 15 years from now mm -hmm. and seeing the differences of how the world used to be in comparison to now. That is something that boggles my mind and hypes me up. It really, oh, really yeah. does. <laughs> so that idea of legacy and building something for future generations to experience, that is something that I strive for. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we should use game design to the the utmost of its capability uh, as far as we can take it mm -hmm. to communicate who we are and what we want to say because at the end of the day there's nothing there's nothing quite like something that you can say and you can express because i cannot replicate that nobody else can replicate what you have and mm -hmm. what you have experienced and how you see the world we can have similarities Sure. But there's nothing quite like me 
making a game about cooking with my grandmother and the world that I built and the mechanics that I built around that because my perspective is going to be so embedded in that. Nobody else. You can try to make a game like it, but it will never be quite that. It yeah. will never invoke certain emotions. It will never invoke certain connections because that game could not have been made if Elaine Gomez didn't design it, right? Right. And I feel the same way about any other game that people make and game design as a communication medium in general. So what does representation really look like for you in design then? Um, just, I mean, because keeping in mind, right, you aren't going to have the same experience as potentially um, like you mentioned, like maybe, maybe making like an Afro-Puerto Rican mm -hmm. character. So how do you approach like implementing that or like working? I don't know. Like how, how do you handle sensitivity? And <laughs> I have well, so many questions. <laughs> well, it's something that you cannot do by yourself, right? Mm -hmm. I am a big advocate for consultants, for freelancers to get hired who are from a specific community who can mm -hmm. really help you hone in on things that you just cannot research on your own about. Yeah. You know? Like Mesoamerican history. There are some people making games out there about the Aztec and the Maya, and they're using it as a world setting mm -hmm. and using certain items or whatever it may be, but there's very specific history in importance to certain things that perhaps as an outsider you would never know mm -hmm. and maybe a cultural consultant can tell you yeah you know what this type of plant that you're using to decorate all your ui it actually means this and it's very disrespectful to do yeah. something like that yeah. and how would you know you know if you were not from that community if you didn't right. know the history of stuff you know and I'm not saying like, oh, you shouldn't use cultural like history or inspiration from other communities. I'm not saying that at all. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to do it, be very mindful of the decisions that you're making. And if you are unsure about something, reach out to people who know more than you mm -hmm. so that you can make the best decision. Um, yeah. And you are being mindful. You are being respectful. So it reminds films. me, it reminds me of, um, uh, I'm terrible. It's an, it's one of the Assassin's Creed one. It's the one that's about like the revolution. And there was like a huge, um, indigenous presence in the game. So, um, I remember thinking, I don't remember what the, what nation it was, but I remember Assassin's reading about Creed three, I think, I believe you are right. correct. Yes. So the main character um, is indigenous. Yes. So he actually, um, like they did a lot of sensitivity consulting, but they went straight to like the tribe, like the nation that they were representing. And they said, hello, please help us make sure that this is appropriate. And I remember playing through like the tutorial at the beginning um, when you're playing one of your ancestors as like a, as a young indigenous boy and you're hunting. And there's this ritual that they coded into the game that every time you killed like a rabbit or a deer or whatever you were hunting, um, there was like a respect ritual. You paid your respect to the dead and thanked it for the life that it gave you and the food that it was going to provide. And that was something that to me, like I'd never experienced in a game before. And that was 100% because they were talking to the culture they were trying to represent. Right, exactly, 100%. Um, I had to look it up, but yeah, the the main character's name's Connor, and he was Mohawk. Mohawk, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that type, 
that type, those type of decisions are critical and they could really offer something very special to gameplay, right? Because they can expose people who would never have the opportunity of talking to a, somebody who is a Mohawk, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you could really expose somebody to something they've never seen before and you can do it the right way. Yeah. You can do it like very truthfully to what it was. Um, and sure. that's great. Um, I know Ubisoft has like their own in-house. Uh, the Assassin's Creed team has like their own in-house historian. That, like, oh, I didn't helps. realize that. Yeah, they they do a lot of their job is to do research and make sure that they're fact checking mm -hmm. a lot of the history because Assassin's Creed's worlds are built on history. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have somebody who can fact check you, who's a professional at that, yeah. um, then it's going to be very difficult to get some things right. So I do and in, in some in some areas, I do applaud them for at least making the moves to trying to be truth truthful to the source material and truthful mm -hmm. to like history and all of that i know in um assassin's creed odyssey they had some mode like discovery mode or something like that that some hmm. schools were using to like teach like greek history ah uh, that's um, fucking cool yeah <laughs> and like that type of stuff is cool like you can your game can me be meaningful in so many different ways. I know, like speaking about indigenous games, like there's Mulaka, a game that was made by a Mexican developer mm -hmm. or development studio, and it was about like a, the a very specific tribe in Mexico that are runners, and like the whole folklore and everything was from that tribe. Oh, cool. Yeah. And again, it's like they were able to share that. Well, I'm definitely going to put that on my playlist for later because I, I think it's um, indigenous representation is one of the areas that I think the game industry is really, really falling behind. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely putting that on my playlist later, especially if it's handled with sensitivity. <laughs> yeah, the, the game development team went out like to the tribe physically. And we're like writing down sketches and stories like that the the elders were orally telling them. That's amazing. Yeah, and it's cool because again, the impact of games where they can build build a an indigenous um, Mexican tribes folklore, digitize it, and then have somebody in Australia play it, and it's just like that could not have been possible, right? Twenty yeah. thirty years ago. Um, and it's not like that tribe's uh, folklore is widely available for people to read in the internet. Maybe mm -hmm. there's some stories that are just only passed down through generations. Oh, yeah. Um, and they were able to grab that and put it in the game. So that's pretty special stuff. So cool. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the challenges or like barriers that you face to like trying to implement this sort of like sensitive design? Well, it's a process that I cannot do on my own, right? Um, mm -hmm. You can raise red flags. You can put things on the radar of leadership, right? Or your leads. Um, and just having conversations about it, right? Um, at Brassline, we are very fortunate that everybody's conscious yeah. of cultural representation and we had a talk last week about certain things with cultural representation. And one of the things that I said was, we should have goals. 
um, that we could align ourselves on when we make decisions. Let's say, mm -hmm. okay, is it meeting this goal? Is what we're designing, the system, this character, is it meeting these pillars that we have all agreed on? And I think that is a good place to start. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a work in progress. You can't just say, these are our goals and pillars. We're going to have representation in our game and just leave it at that. It's mm -hmm. like constantly talking with everybody, animation and design and, <laughs> and narrative, everybody together making this thing as authentic as possible. Yeah. And then again, going to your consultants, like doing your research about things and bringing that up so that everybody's aware um, and sharing that information. So if I were to make a decision on something, right, if I mm -hmm. say, okay, I really want to us to have an Afro-Puerto Rican character. Mm -hmm. um, these are the things that are important of history, right? Okay, let's bring in an Afro-Puerto Rican historian to, to talk to us for an hour yeah. about what are some really important things that we may have missed or some really important mm -hmm. things that are not common knowledge that we can use. And from then on, make a plan to implement. Mm -hmm. I think different studios implement that process in different ways. Sometimes is like hitting your head against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's impossible. Rip. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people are not receptive. Sometimes people are more worried about being politically correct or following a business model because mm -hmm. that is how that studio or company works. But if you have the freedom to make decisions like that, or if you have the boldness to bring it up, mm -hmm. um, who knows what that moment, how that moment can impact and make a difference in the project that you're working on. Um, yeah. And even if it's just you bring it up and it goes nowhere, there's a lot of merit in the fact that it was brought up because people heard. Mm -hmm. And things don't just disappear. Like people definitely think about things. Oh yeah. You're occupying um, brain space for them now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then if you constantly bring it up, it's even better because then it's just gnawing at them all the time. <laughs> They're like, maybe if we do it, she'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And like, I'm, I'm remembering, um, when I, I went to business school and we did like a sustainability course in Costa Rica for like a week and a half. And we actually talked to the people there about the, you know, the coffee industry was the one that I really stood out to me because I'm obsessed with coffee. But um, we really talked to them about their history and community and how that informed, you know, how they set up their business and what their priorities were. And they're so community focused um, in, in Monteverde where we were. And it's just like, I mean, it's it's the same thing for me that you're describing of like just being sensitive and talking to people and understanding really what you're working with. Exactly. I love that. Um, well, on that note, first of all, I just want to say this has been incredible to listen to. So on that note, we're going to cut to another commercial break real quick. And when we come back, I really want to talk about accessibility and design because we've hinted at it and haven't gone there. Hey, podcasters and content creators. Question for you. Are you reaching as many people as you want to? You invest time and money to produce the highest quality content you possibly can. But by creating content in only one language, you limit your reach to only the audiences who know that language. 
I want to introduce you to Victor Voice, a tool that can help you reach a bigger audience by creating audio in multiple languages. Victor Voice is a new subscription software that lets you transcribe, translate, and voice audio in multiple languages. It's easy to use, fast, and accurate. Go to www.victorvoice.co to sign up for your free trial today. No credit card required. That's victorvoice.co. We're back on replay, and we're about to hear more from Elaine Gomez about accessibility in game design. So this is... um, this is a topic that's become really important to me because I do have some friends who are disabled in a variety of different ways. And one of them was trying to join a LARP recently and was was having trouble finding something that she could actually do because of her physical disabilities that she had. And so um, I know that's a totally different space than video game design, of course, but I really want to talk about it from somebody who's passionate about it and who knows about it. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I, I guess I'm just going to start by asking you, why is it important to design for accessibility? Well, you, I, I know people have heard this before, and I'm such a big supporter of able gamers and everything that they do. And mm-hmm. I really do believe that everybody should have the opportunity to play. Um, regardless of whether they're able-bodied or not, if they like a game, they should have options to experience that game Mm -hmm. and not be forced to just watching gameplay because it's not accessible to them, right? It's it's not the same to hold a controller, whether it's a standard or or alternate controller. Um, It's not the same watching a video than it is like really moving around in a space and interacting with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, So it's important to me because like I, I may look able-bodied, right? But like I had amputations on my legs and feet and mm-hmm. holding controllers and especially using triggers and bumper buttons can be difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time that I really experienced this as a designer and developer was when I was at USC mm-hmm. when I went to Indicade and Leap Motion had their sensor like they're not wearables, but they were like these plug-in things that are mm-hmm. like sensors where you like move your hand and games have been developed for it, where it was like kind of like a augmented reality type of controller. Oh, cool. So you had like your hands over the sensor and it would read your hand and then whatever games were on it, it's like you could grab stuff, you could move it around, you can touch stuff in the, in, in the screen, right? Mm-hmm. And when I plugged it in, I was like, okay, this would be cool to develop something to consider. And as soon as I put my hand on the sensor, it was the very first time that I saw something digital map my amputations. So the hands went from like full five digits, uh-huh. really mapping the, the, the fingers that I was missing <gasps> uh, and the sections that I was missing. And I was actually not able to play some of the games because it was reading my hand wrong. Um, wow. And that was the first time that I experienced something that was inaccessible to me. Because growing mm-hmm. up, I was just like, no, I am going to learn guitar. I am going to learn how to write pretty and all this stuff, regardless mm-hmm. of my limitations. And I've been able to do that. Um, but that was like the first time I was like, damn, like I literally cannot play this game because I it thinks that my hand is closed. So I can't open it to like grab the digital item so that I can play. 
So that oh, was like man. my very, very first experience um, with them. And I just, you know, left it in the back burner for a long time. I was just like doing my own thing, right? Mm-hmm. And then two years ago, um, I really started seeing um, Able Gamers like pop up into my feeds. And I really started investigating like what what does it mean to create games for everyone? Yeah. Like what does it mean to have a game be accessible? Like is it just about input or like is it other types of things that you need to consider? Um, so I was reading more about it. And then I saw that they had this APX training workshop. It's called the Able Gamers um, Accessible um, Practitioner uh, certificate that they have. Oh, it's cool. Like an intensive workshop. They go through this whole um, thing. Um, out, nothing. It's like, like a class. It's a course. Yeah. Um, but they created these um, design patterns and challenge patterns like in collaboration with a bunch of doctors, PhD candidates. So this is something that's been very extensive, like very, very purposeful and intentional. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they they spoke to di- all different types of people who game, who have different types of disabilities and how, what are some of their frustrations? Mm-hmm. Um, what are the, some, some things that they would like to have that they haven't seen yet in games, things like that. So I was like, I want to be part of that workshop. And then I saw that it was cost a lot of money to do it. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm poor. <laughs> like, I can't afford this. <laughs> I was like, but I really want to learn this stuff because I haven't found a good book on on, on that. I don't know anybody who has t- is talking about that from a design perspective. Like, I really need to do this. So they had like a scholarship little grant like application. It's just like you can get a subsidized like seat in, in yeah. all these workshops. So I took my time and I was just wrote a really passionate like application. I was like, I really want this to be the way that I design. I want to be inclusive and mindful of people who are not like normal gamers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to do it. And I don't even know where to start. And if you could please give me a seat for free, <laughs> <laughs> it would really help me get there, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm, I definitely tugged in some heartstrings or something. Yes. <laughs> and I got a spot. And I was like, hell yeah, let me do this thing. It was super intensive, by the way. It was like eight straight hours of intensive, inclusive, like, learning. Yeah. Things that I never even thought about before. Things like there are different types of input devices that are not just commercial that people know about. but. Mm-hmm. But players with disabilities know that these things exist, yeah. right? And I was just like, what? You can plug in a vest that vibrates so that you can feel directional vibrations on your body so that you can hear, quote unquote, if you're not hearing. And you can feel the vibration so you know something's coming from the left, even though you cannot hear it. Wow. And that's what helps you game, right? It's like crazy stuff like that's this. That's so freaking cool. Yes. There are some really cool like plugins, adaptable controllers um, that do this type of stuff. And I was just like, whoa, like that, that's the type of stuff that I just didn't know existed, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not to mention things like what if there is somebody out there who has been very traumatized by abuse and mm-hmm. they go into a game that has 
topics of abuse and the game doesn't say anything about it until they're in it. And all yeah. of a sudden you trigger their trauma and all of a sudden they go out of control and have a panic attack. That's yeah. your fault as a designer and developer not giving trigger warnings, not allowing that content to be bypassable. Mm-hmm. To me, I was like, wow, I never thought about that being a possibility that I could have options in a menu where if somebody really wants to shut off sensitive story, they have the option to toggle that on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, or they have the option to um, make puzzles bypassable because they do not have, it's too much of a cognitive load to do something over and over again and failing at it and feeling like you're not good enough yeah. and having an option to shut it off or having an option to get more hints so that it's easy to solve. All that stuff exposed during the APX training. And, you know, they give you like a booklet with all the information. They give you these cards that have all these different types of patterns that you can use to help you brainstorm accessibility design for your game. And I, like, no joke, I tell it to everybody, that workshop changed my life. I have never <laughs> designed the same again because now it has become second nature Nature when I make a feature and I'm like, how can a hearing person interact with this? Mm-hmm. How can a blind person interact with this? How can a person who has cognitive um, disabilities interact with this? Mm-hmm. Or somebody who has motor issues that cannot hold the controller properly? Or it's too much of a burden to hold the button. Mm-hmm. What are all alternatives that I can that I can offer so that they can still experience this? I didn't think like that before because I had yeah. no idea you should be thinking like that. And it should be the default way that game designers think anyway because who wouldn't want as many people as possible to play your game? Absolutely. We all want that. Do you know like the market value that we could have in our games? <laughs> And the ex- like billions of dollars that we could potentially add on to the, the the generation of money that our games can make if we tapped into the accessibility community and yeah. made things available for them. They have disposable income just like everybody else does. Oh, yeah. And they want to play all the games. Like, why not give them access to that? It's like literally like if you talk about business model, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a no-brainer, right? Yeah. It's just like, yes, let's make more people play and buy the game, and we can make more games with the money that we can have coming in, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, but but yeah, like that. That's really what encouraged me and inspired me was just the fact that I have never, I never knew that that was possible. I didn't know where to start, and now I know exactly where to start and where to go. And now I can influence other people and say. You need to read this book. You need to try the the APX cards. Try Mm -hmm. to join the APX training. Companies as a whole have the resource to be able to say, our UX team or designers, here here are some seats for the workshop. Like Niantic, Niantic's UI and UX team was in the workshop at the same time that I was. So it was interesting to hear them. Yeah, it was interesting to hear them talk about some specific things, right? Because they're mobile. So like, how do we make stuff available on mobile when our game requires people to move around? Yeah. What do we do? And it's not like, it's not like the workshop's like, here are the solutions. We're going to design this stuff for you. It's nothing like that. But it's like, we're going to expose you to all the problems that could come about that. And you need to come up with your solutions for your project. 
but here's the breadth and the range of solutions mm-hmm. that could be applicable for it. And like having having just even the opportunity to know what those tool sets are makes a world of a difference. Yeah. That Oh, there's so many things I want to ask. So, um, I mean, you mentioned like all of the the tools, like the different kinds of controllers and plugins and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. As a designer, um, obviously being aware of that helps you, you know, understand how people will interact with your features, right? That makes yeah. sense. But do you have to like, I guess, do you have to design differently or like in a technical way? Like, is there a different kind of coding or anything you have to do to like sort of facilitate that? I'm thinking of like when I've tried to do some PC (laughs) games and then the controller won't let me plug in because it doesn't like it or whatever. Like, you know. (laughs) Right. Like from a from like a developer standpoint, right? Like that's a conversation that like I need to have with like the programming team, right? Yeah. Um, And that's why it's important to have as many disciplines on the same page as possible when you're designing for accessibility Mm -hmm. Um, because the programmers need to know, hey, we need to have the we need to have the ability to for our game to have different types of input and for the game to be able to read some like whatever software like for example text-to-speech yeah um there are softwares that are plugged in for that how do we make it easy for that software to connect to our game yeah it's been done before it's not rocket science okay what other studios have done that before? What other companies? Okay, let's reach out to them and see what their process was. Because we don't know how oh, to do it, yeah. but they know. And that's the type of stuff. It's like, I, I it really sucks to see in games that everybody's so proprietary and wants to hold everything like it's my precious, like this is my <laughs> idea. These are my systems. These are my models on how I implemented this. But like, no. When it comes to accessibility design, why can we be a little bit more like Respawn that made like the entire Apex system available open source for anybody to use? Mm-hmm. Because that's useful, super useful. Like talk about nonverbal communication, like that's like huge pillar in accessibility. Yeah. There's plenty of people who do not want to engage socially, especially women, um, engage socially with a community that could be toxic. But yep. with a ping system, I can easily say, hey, there's something over here. Hey, I need help. And I don't need to actually talk to you. I can just very in-game communicate with you and I can <laughs> have fun, you know? Yeah. So I would love for our industry to come together and collaborate, create partnerships when it comes to that type of design. Because mm-hmm. there's no way that I can excel in an area that I don't know anything about, yet you hold the keys of knowledge too. It's like, why are you holding the keys of knowledge? Yeah. Pass it around so that we can all make our games accessible to everybody else to play. Um, for example, The Last of Us entire accessibility suite was extremely robust mm-hmm. and very specific to the their type of design and mm-hmm. their type of gameplay. But why not make some of those things available to other folks? You know, like there's no reason why something as generic as, oh, I'm throwing an item like away from me, why I cannot make the accessibility suite for that available for other people. These are the steps that you should think about when you are creating this type of accessibility feature. 
here's a list. Here are the goals. You don't even need to give me the source code for it. I don't care about the implementation. I care about the process and the mm -hmm. problem solving that you went through for your game so that I could use it as a reference for mine. Oh, and absolutely. Imp and implement it in the way that works for me, but understand, okay, to avoid this or to perhaps to try for this other thing. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to see less like holding back on those types of things mm -hmm. um, because I think it would be so helpful for, for all of us, especially for indie developers who just don't have the kind of resource to have oh, like yeah. a full accessibility team with programmers, with artists, like, like Ubisoft and Naughty Dog and all these big companies, they have the money to hire an entire department that yeah. only focuses on that. And that's why their menu accessibility features are fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. But take an indie team of five people who are trying to make their game accessible and tell them like, oh yeah, build this accessibility like suite. They'll be like, we don't have the time for that. We're literally trying to just live. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're just trying to make something and make some money to pay rent. You know what I mean? Right. So, but again, if those type of resources were available to the whole industry, then that indie team could just tap into and be like, okay, this is a process to implement colorblindness features. Um, oh, my game engine has built-in features so that it's very easy for me to do that. <sighs> okay, let's do it. Love you that. Know? And, yeah. that, you know, like there's not a lot of that type of help. I know Unreal has accessibility features that you can easily tap into, but Unity, I don't think is is there yet. Mm -hmm. Perhaps Godot's not there yet. Perhaps other game engines and, and different forms are not ready there yet. So yeah. it would be great if everybody just came to the same page and collaborate a little bit more mm -hmm. to help each other in that front. I'm really, I'm really struck by the fact that you said that like, when you found out about the, the certificate from Able Gamers, right? You were like, I literally don't know how to get started any other way. And that when was that? When did you, do you um, remember? So the very first time that I got exposed to accessibility, anything was through Steven, Steve Spawn. Um, mm -hmm. And he was part of just like a panel that I was on. Um, and just listening to him talk about something. So it's just like, wow, I never would have thought. Like mm -hmm. it's in the back end. And it's just like, you think about diversity and inclusion and something really tugged at me because he said it was I, I was come it was I was convicted and like my heart and my soul he <laughs> said he said you know we talk about diversity and inclusion and everybody talks about people of color we talk about different languages we talk about different religions we talk about men women we talk about LGBTQA plus but where are people with disabilities mm -hmm. everybody is either forgotten or placed last it's mm -hmm. like I just want to be included and be at the table with everybody else and I was just like, damn, like that really like tug at my heart. Cause I was like, yeah. you are so right. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, and I should be included like diversity and inclusion and equity should literally include everyone. If we're talking, it was like an intersectional panel. So I was like, damn, talk about intersectionality because yeah. I never even thought about that. When I think about diversity and inclusion, I'm always thinking gender identity and race mm -hmm. always, but never the the intersection of ability, 
and race and language and gender identity, all of those things. There's people out there who literally fall under every single one of those communities mm -hmm. and they're forgotten when it comes to design. Yeah. So I don't know. He changed, I would say he changed my life too. <laughs> Perhaps that's like a really um, like super like, um, like cliche to say something like that. But like he opened my mind and, and definitely gave me a new perspective that I don't think anybody else would have been able to do. And yeah. that in turn was like a domino effect in my own personal and like, like, like as a, as a person and as a designer, that that was the 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 push that I needed to start putting all the pieces together and mm -hmm. for myself, do that for myself. Like I want to learn this. I want this to be an active part of my design process. I want to be able to share this with my team and in turn inspire them mm -hmm. and motivate them to think about it in the same way that I do. And I have been very fortunate at Brassline that I've been able to do that. So much so that the design team, like our game directors, like Elaine is so right. We need to think about accessibility. Everybody's game design documents need to have accessibility. Um, what did he call it? Uh, considerations. So now mm -hmm. everybody's design docs has like a list of what are the accessibility things that are going to be problematic or applicable <sighs> to the thing that you're designing. That's amazing. Yes. And of course, I can't talk details, but at of least <laughs> there is room in document where that is being thought about very early. Um, and That's we, amazing. And we are constantly saying, okay, we implemented this thing. How is it accessible? How can we second channel everything? How can a hearing person like like experience this? How can somebody with like low vision be able to see this? Like, what can mm -hmm. we do? What are the solutions? And like, it just makes my heart feel all fuzzy inside because to be honest, if it weren't for me pushing, that wouldn't even be a, co a full conversation that we mm -hmm. would be having, right? It just takes one person. Yeah. Um, and I, I just feel like, if that is the legacy that I can leave behind um, at Brassline, it's like, oh, Eileen was like the person that that was our accessibility like champion, and she made it possible for us to like get a team going and to, to get the funding for it. And like now we have a whole robust accessibility suite that has set the standard across the board for all this new stuff. Oh my God, what a legacy! Ah, that I would love that. I oh, would man. love that. As a <laughs> well, designer. I mean, well, but you're already you're already laying the groundwork for that, right? Like you're you're you are the reason those design doc sections exist, period. Exactly. So like And now it's go. part of the template of our design doc. So yeah. how new designers who are gonna come in, they're gonna see that template and say, Okay, this is how we draft design documents at Brassline. Mm -hmm. Um and accessibility is at the core of, of that blueprint for them to follow. Yeah. So, it's pretty special. I'm very proud of that. That's and I so know cool. that it's not just me, right? Like it's it takes a village. It's an entire team that's going to make this project that we're working on as accessible as possible. Mm -hmm. But it really took just one person to lay put it on top of the table as something that was achievable and doable for us to do. And now it has become so important to everybody else that it's a core pillar of our project. Yeah. And again, that wouldn't have happened if I raised a flag early and was like, hey, we should really be talking about this and and everything that we do. It's like in every meeting, I'm sure like people will get annoyed with me. Elaine's always like, 
So what are the accessibility concerns that we are going to be <laughs> talking about when it comes to this? And I bring it up every design meeting yeah. because it's so special to me. And I don't want it to fall off the bandwagon because mm -hmm. it's so easy to forget. We say, yeah, we're going to develop it. Yeah, we're going to implement it. But a year down the road, two years down the road. And then when it comes, it's like, oh, shit, we don't have time to implement. We're like really trying to hit this deadline and we didn't create the production like time to be mm -hmm. able to build this thing. I was like, no, 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 no. Let's go back to our roadmap. Let's figure out in what sprint does this belong in? Hey, producers, we need an entire accessibility sprint. What are we gonna, what are you gonna do so that right. we have time to do this? It's literally an entire team effort, but it just takes one person to say, this is important and flag it. And I hope that other designers can do the same thing and make mm -hmm. that difference at their studio. How can other game designers learn more about accessible, accessible design? So I say, um, so the Able Gamers has a page with all of the information for APX available for free. Oh, so you can okay, actually cool. buy, you can buy the little cards that have those design and um, challenge patterns on them mm -hmm. so, to get your mind going. Like that's a great start point. I think that the deck yeah. of cards is like, it's like 10, 10 or $15 is it's relatively affordable. If you can get your job or your studio to like pay that for you, that's even great. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a few books that I've read that come from the um, web design and like mobile design field. Oh yeah. Yes, and a lot of a lot of information from accessibility comes from like human computer interaction mm -hmm. and just general web design. Yeah, so, that makes sense. Yeah, so even though you may not have the money to buy APX or go through the workshop, you can read a lot of that information that's available online because it's straight up applicable to the same thing because we're dealing with moving pieces on a, on a digital screen. Mm -hmm. So the color palettes and different types of options when it comes to that audio, um, all of that stuff is very transferable to games. Mm -hmm. So that's what I recommend. I what, The way that I started, to be honest, I went on on Google and just started typing up accessibility interactions or accessibility oh. interactive design, accessibility web design, and a bunch of books, a bunch of blogs, a bunch of stuff started creeping up. And little by little, I've been trying to, to read things. Um, mm -hmm. YouTube, like there's a lot of talks on YouTube that you can watch, not just from able gamers, but from all different types of companies doing this work in tech um, yeah. outside of games. So um, there's a lot, a lot of knowledge out there. There's just not a lot of game design specific knowledge. Mm -hmm. But if you can go outside and get inspired by another field, that's just as valuable. Oh, I love that. That's amazing advice. Um, on that note, uh, I, I think we have to draw the conversation to a close. Um, <laughs> so I just want to I, I just want to end the conversation by saying is, is there any final message or any last thing you want to get out there to the listeners today? My last message would be, um, if you are passionate about anything that has to do with games, and you feel stuck in any way, um, whether it's accessibility, whether it's representation, um, give yourself some grace. You don't need to solve the industry's problems by yourself. Mm -hmm. Do your best and do what you can and be the impact that you can be in the space that you're at with the resources that you have. 
and that's enough to make waves. Beautifully said. I love that. Um, I just want to add for my own part, uh, we've heard some really awesome things about Brass Lion and Brass Lion is hiring. Yes, so they are. <laughs> if you want to work with Elaine, um, I'm going to put some links down in the show notes. Feel free to check that out or just go to their website um, because they're doing some really cool stuff in the space of accessibility and representation. And uh, you've heard a lot about it today. So I encourage anyone who's interested in that to check that out. Um, and I believe Elaine would probably even talk to you about it. So reach out to her yes. on Twitter. <laughs> yes, feel free to um, DM me. My my handle is at Chulatastic. Um, that's like all my socials. Feel free to send me a message on LinkedIn, whatever you feel is most comfortable, even an email. I'd be happy to share books, articles, whatever I have that can help you get started and whatever you need. But yes, please apply to Brass Lion. We're hiring for a lot of programming positions. So if that's up your alley and you have been in the industry like two to five years, like we would love to to see your resume and hopefully, um, you know, at least get you an interview, right? I can't promise <laughs> anything, right? But like I can cross my fingers um, for you because it really is a great place. Best place that I've worked at. Oh. For sure. And that says a lot. I Um, love to hear that. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) All right. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for joining me on Replay today. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk my ass off about things that I care about. (laughs) I love it. It's my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again soon with another episode. You can find episodes of Replay and all other Victor Media Group podcasts at victormediagroup.co. Replay is a VMG original and is created, hosted, and produced by Clara Mount. The show's executive produced by J.B. Adams and Gerard Mitchell with sound design by Anna Hughes and original music by Bison. It's the mission of Victor Media Group to make the world a better place by making ourselves better people. If you like this show, follow Victor Media Group on your favorite social channels and check out Bison's other tunes on Spotify, Bandcamp, and SoundCloud. Extra special thanks to all my listeners for hanging out with us today. Keep on playing and remember, you're always welcome at this game table.